11, we'll be looking at verses 3 through 14. And while you're turning there, I'll just remind you of, of the fact that, that much of Revelation speaks in symbolic language. We've said that time and time again. Symbolism in apocalyptic literature, however, is not meant to soften the impact of the passage. It's not meant to say this, this isn't as serious. Right? It's just symbolic. <clears throat> Revelation is filled with pictures and, and illustrations. Right? It's, it's illustrations of truth that is meant to magnify our sense of purpose and to deepen our conviction and our confidence in God's plan and his redemptive plan. So John is recording this revelation from exile. He's received this vision while he was on the island of Patmos. So he, um, and history tells us that was around AD 95. So he has been banished there by the government. And whether he was preaching against the idolatry of the people in Asia Minor or openly rebuking the Roman emperor Domitian, who would have been calling for um, really a promotion and an increase of the imperial cult, taking it to whole new levels during his reign. Whether he was like openly rebuking that or simply just calling out the idolatry, he was exiled because he was viewed as a social disruptor, right? A disruptor of the peace. So they sent him to Patmos. That's the context in which he's writing here. And so when he speaks of tribulation and trials, he's in the midst of it himself. He fully understands what he's, what he's doing here. He's exhorting and encouraging the people who are terrified, who are fearful that they're about to experience the same kind of fate that he has and that his might get worse. All right, so last week, we transitioned from this recommissioning of John to proclaim the revelation that God had given to him right in Revelation 10 to continue to proclaim that, that truth. Uh, so that commission was described in chapter 10, and, but it transitions in 11 to the commission that's given to the church that serves as a witness. And so we focus upon the fact that the people of God are never separated from the presence of God. However, that, that promise, we said, does not eliminate the possibility of persecution. And we will face persecution, in fact. So Jesus warned his disciples that Jerusalem would be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles. He, he warned this in Luke chapter 21, verse 24, that the covenant people would be led captive among all the nations. That was promised to them during Jesus's ministry. <clears throat> and that itself was partially fulfilled under Rome's destruction of Jerusalem in AD 7. should expect, but it didn't exhaust that prophecy that Jesus gave. We should expect ongoing persecution throughout this present age. And of course, there's the two views of, of when you're, well, two views that I've continued to bring up about the dating of the book. So imagine in this context, right, you have people who remember the, the uh, warning that Jesus gave them, and then in AD 70, the destruction of the temple, and so some would argue that the original audience was reading this just prior to that destruction of the temple. And so as we read in verses 1 and 2 last week of the measuring of the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there as a symbol of the protection that God was promising them, 
you would think that the original reader at that point, if they were living in between you know, 68, 69 AD, they would absolutely be thinking in very literal terms, thinking that this is describing the temple and their preservation and protection in the midst of a, of a very imminent persecution upon them. Injury. And so it would seem rather odd that the promise to protect the temple in Jerusalem, which was the only temple they would have had in mind, there's not some other temple that they could have thought about at that point. The fact that just a few years later that temple was destroyed would seem to compromise the confidence that anyone would have in the book of Revelation. Very difficult. If you're dating the book of Revelation at that time, it's, it's, this passage seems to be very difficult to understand because they would be expecting a literal under, uh, protection and they would not have received it. However, all right, it, if, if the uh, original audience was reading this some 25 years later, as I've argued, that if they're reading that somewhere around 95 AD, 25 years after the destruction of the temple, then they would assume that John is speaking symbolically. They would have to, because the temple's already been destroyed. So what's being measured here? It's not a literal temple that's being measured. It's the people of God gathered wherever they're gathered. And so John is speaking of a symbolic temple. He does, in fact, in this passage, in verse 8, he'll allude to the fact that he speaks symbolically. He doesn't allow anyone to read this in a literal fashion. And so we'll get to that later on. Um, we, we also had to look at the, the phrase 42 months, and we considered um, 1,260 days, and then the phrase a time, a times, and a half of time. And all of these are references uh, to a three-and-a-half-year period. But again, even that, that time frame is not a literal period of time. They seem to function as a description of a season in which the church is both protected as well as persecuted. And it's a, the numbers symbolically represent the relationship between the church and the world throughout this age, and that, that we are protected by God, but in this world we will have persecution. So John's vision continues to employ that same symbolism in the rest of this chapter, at least in the passage we'll read up to, verses 3, 14, um, that symbolism of a church that is both protected and persecuted. And here it's implying the ongoing witness of the church. That's, that's the main theme of this section. It's the, that that persecution and that protection is directly related to the proclamation of their message, right? The proclamation of the gospel. So that's the, the main point I want you to take away from this passage is that the church is called to testify of God's grace and wrath in the face of hostility. So before we read it, let's ask the Lord for his help in understanding it. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this truth and we thank you for these precious and important reminders to us so that when we go through times of tribulation, when we have missionaries that we send out who are persecuted, Lord, we can be reminded that, that this is what you promise. Uh, we should expect it. We're grateful for the seasons where we don't experience intense levels of persecution, but expect to go through them at some point. And as we go through them, to be reminded that, that you have promised to protect us spiritually that you have given us that promise that you'll bring us home, that you'll finish the work that you've began, regardless of our situation, regardless of our circumstances. Lord, you will complete what you've begun. 
And so we thank you for that. Help us as we read this passage to apply it to our lives. Help us to have eyes to see, ears to hear this truth, and softened hearts, Lord, that we would be obedient, doers of your word, and not hearers only. It's in Christ's name we ask it. Amen. So read with me of Revelation chapter 11, verses 3 through 14. And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1,260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. Anyone would harm them, fire pours from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying. And they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, uh, some from the peoples and the tribes and the languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them and they stood up on their feet and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud and their enemies watched them. And at their hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Amen. This is God's holy word. Well, if you're following along in your outline, the first, first point is verses three through six, the witness of the church, the witness of the church. God promises to send two witnesses to prophesy for 1,260 days, and they're clothed in sackcloth. So their clothing implies this posture as well as a message of repentance. Sackcloth directly this heavy fabric, right, uh, made of thick goat's hair. It was worn directly on the skin, which would have caused extreme discomfort and irritation, and the Old Testament often depicts individuals and nations repenting in sackcloth and ashes. And so it was meant to symbolize a sorrowful heart for committing an offense against God. And many of the prophets prophesied, that was kind of their attire, was to, to go out prophesying of the judgment that was coming and they would, they would wear sackcloth. And so it's a symbol of their own need for repentance as well as the need for the nation to repent. And these two witnesses are here described in verse 4 as two olive trees and two lampstands. Now, if these witnesses are literal prophets, as many futurists uh, argue, then why are they called lampstands and olive trees, for one? That seems to immediately indicate something symbolic. This isn't 
you know, uh, Lumiere from Beauty and the Beast, like a, a real life depiction of, of that. This isn't a, a lampstand walking around and talking. Now, the, the prophet Zechariah saw a vision of, of two olive trees that flanked a lampstand in Zechariah chapter 4, verses 3 and 11. And so the lampstand in that chapter represented the building of the temple. And it was the, the, only the foundation at that point had been built. And the promise was that it would be completed, although they would face opposition. That was the context of the original vision that, that John here is alluding to in Zechariah. So the, tree, the trees that were flanking that lampstand are supplying oil, olive trees, right, producing the oil that then feeds the lampstand and allows that flame to not burn out. It allows, it allows that flame to continue indefinitely. So Zechariah was informed that those two trees represented two anointed individuals with the high priest and Zerubbabel the governor who stand with the Lord. That's in, described in Zechariah 4.14. And the point of that passage is that the temple would be completed because of the work that was enabled by the Holy Spirit that's represented as the oil feeding the lampstand. Right? And that the Holy Spirit, um, or sorry, the enabling of the Holy Spirit as well as the kingly and priestly oversight of these two anointed individuals represented by the trees. So in Revelation, these witnesses, they stand before the Lord of the earth. Just like the seven lampstands, which were representing the church in chapter one. Remember, there was a, they were spoken of as lampstands. Each church, there were seven churches, well, there were seven lampstands before the throne of God in Revelation 1, verse 20. And so the role of the church as kings and priests, that would connect it back to the the, the governor and the priest in Israel, in Zechariah, uh, it, it's representing that theme of uh, the church as kings and priests. And that's mentioned all uh, very, very beginning, Revelation 1, verse 6, where we had the idea that we are a kingdom of priests. And so, um, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests, to his God and Father. And you have a similar reminder in chapter 5, verse 10, speaking of the church, as uh, you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Similar themes, right? We as believers are given those roles of reigning and this, this priestly role. Right? That's what the, the, the responsibility of the church is, is to continue uh, to portray those roles in this lost world. There is no reason to suggest that John is using lampstand here any differently than he did in Chapel. If it would be really hard to read anything consistently or logically if you, you took a symbol that was already described as representing the church, the lampstand, the lampstand represents the church in chapter one, and then to take that same word lampstand later on and say, but this represents something else without that very clearly being articulated, because John doesn't explain it here, which means we should imply that it's the same kind of symbolism. It's the same thing, it's, but there's only two here instead of seven, and, he, and, and that would make sense because what are they doing? They, the two lampstands coincide with the number of witnesses that are needed to validate any testimony. 
That's consistent with Deuteronomy chapter 19, verse 15. It's also consistent with the New Testament. Jesus and Paul refer to that same principle. The idea that, that a testimony is only valid if there are at least two or three witnesses. And so you have the same thing here. The lampstands being represented by the number required to validate their testimony. And so these witnesses had the ability, it goes on to say, the ability to kill anyone who attacked them in verse 5. They would devour them with fire from their mouths. Well, the Lord told Jeremiah, I am making my words in your mouth a fire, and this people would, and the fire shall consume them. Of course, he's not zapping them as a wizard and saying, Jeremiah, you're going to be a fire-breathing dragon, and these people are going to be wood. No, he's, he's saying your proclamation of judgment is going to consume them. The words of judgment will be true of them, right? They will face that judgment. God was not promising something literal there. He's using symbolic language. So the fire coupled with the supply of oil might imply the unquenchable quality of the lampstand's flame. Right? The lampstand represents the church, the spreading the light of the gospel, and that light is unquenchable because the oil is continuing to fill it, right? The, the enabling and uh, will of the Holy Spirit is continuing to, to give the church empowerment to witness. I suggest as the work of the building of the temple in Zechariah was unstoppable because of God's promise, so the testimony, the testimony of the church is invincible because of this promise. So these witnesses could also prevent the rain, it says in verse 6. They could prevent rain, which would enforce a drought and famine upon the land. And this is what Elijah was able to do in 1 Kings 17.1. And then like Moses, these witnesses are able to turn water into blood and strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. Again, although the allusions clearly point us to Moses and Elijah, it's not implying that they're going to come back reincarnated. Right? The idea is that the, that the pattern of their ministry is going to continue through the church. The church has a gospel message that will be proclaimed for salvation as well as judgment, just as the prophets of old. Their testimony is fueled by the Holy Spirit so that it is ongoing and invincible. The gospel goes forth in power to save those who ought never be ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God. All right, and so we are a fragrant aroma leading to life, but it's also an aroma that leads to death for those who reject it. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 15 through 17 so let this passage, this illustration, challenge you to evangelize with, with confidence, right? knowing that your message will be rejected, but it will also be received by some. Ask God to provide an open door and to fill you with confidence to walk through those doors when he opens them. But in light of the protection <clears throat> promised to the church, it, it is shocking what we read next, that portrait Right? It's, we've just been dis given this image that portrays the invincible witness and testimony of the church. And then we see the death of these witnesses, the death of the church, if you're following the outline verses 7 through 10. 
After these witnesses finish proclaiming their testimony, they are killed by a beast that rises from the bottomless pit. Here again, John alludes to Daniel's vision of a beast's horn that made war with the saints, and it says specifically that that horn prevailed against them or prevailed over them. The beast is this demonic imposter who successfully makes war against the church, deceiving people from every nation. And that intensity of the intensity of the beast's attack will increase <clears throat> as we near the end of this age. And we'll see as we make our way through Revelation in chapters 19 and 20 that to be true. So the authoritative role of the beast. The fact that it's been given authority here, that it has authority, that, that role suggests that it's this state power, right? It's an undefined state power that is persecuting the church. I believe any time the forces of evil successfully silence the church, we see something like this vision playing out. And so the slain bodies of these witnesses will remain untouched in the streets of the great city as it's described in verse 8, as uh, the great city whose corruption is symbolically called Sodom and Egypt. Now, some have said that this is sort of renaming Jerusalem. They've supposed that this is a reference to Jerusalem because of the, the phrase, where their Lord was crucified. And it says that it was... Um, their bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord was crucified. So they've supposed it's a reference to Jerusalem. But every other occurrence of the phrase the great city in Revelation, as you continue to read in chapters 16, 17, and 18, over and over again, every case, the great city is a reference to Babylon. And Babylon's already been destroyed. Right? So this is a, another symbolic example of a great city that is standing in opposition to God. Right? It's the place that crucifies the Lord, and that puts the beast on the throne. That's the place that's being described here as the great city. Right? The great city represents anywhere that attempts to silence the church and then rejoices over her destruction and mocks her death. And so, of course, this doesn't depict the literal death of the church, um, but it's her apparent demise. The people of God face a corruption that is worse than Sodom and an opposition that is worse than Egypt because these two symbolic nations have been combined into one demonic state power that will later be called Babylon. So the church will be treated with such disdain and it, so that its influence will seem insignificant. That's what's being portrayed here. And if John had a literal Jerusalem in mind, then we would likewise have to assume that in verse 9, he's speaking of literally individuals, representatives from every nation gathering in mock and mockingly gazing upon those dead bodies of the two witnesses over the course of three and a half days. And so the inhabitants of the, the city refused to honor the bodies with a proper burial. And, you know, one dispensational... Uh, Futurist describes this as uh, uh, Hal Lindsey. He suggests that the fulfillment of this verse would be the worldwide broadcast of their death on television. Now, that's how everyone is able to see it. But it, it seems much more simpler to simply understand that this is representing the church worldwide that is being persecuted 
right, that experiences, that experiences persecution. Uh, and so we've already seen the phrase, those who dwell on the earth several times. Uh, it comes again in verse 10. It's an idiomatic expression of, of people who are opposed to God and his people, right, wherever they might be. Uh, that's why it's, it's, it's given this generic phrase, they dwell, those who dwell on the earth. But it's in opposition to those who are in God's temple, those who are protected by him. Right? And instead of a, a funeral, those who dwell on the earth are throwing a celebration over these dead bodies. It's the, the torment of these witnesses in their minds had reached its apparent conclusion. So Rezegui says the paradox of a vulnerable yet protected community of believers is developed by the image of two stock characters who are invincible yet conquered. That's the paradox of the church. Invincible yet conquered. And so the vision is fulfilled anytime state opposition overpowers the church, whether it be Rome, North Korea, Saudi Arabia. You can continue to name other nations. And so the question for us is, does the witness of the church or its opposition tend to occupy more of your attention? And do you tend to strategize how you might avoid the conflict that will inevitably come or to winsomely speak of the truth in love? Or do you operate out of a sense of fear or confidence? Are you reading the newspaper worried about everything that's happening politically, educationally, economically? Are you worried about those things and its impact upon the church or your faith? Or are you confidently proclaiming, knowing that your testimony will have an impact, right? As long as Satan is roaming like a roaring lion, opposition to Christianity is inevitable. And that's equally true on a personal conflict. That doesn't mean we should, be, uh, we should delight in conflict, and it doesn't mean that we should seek uh, to enter into every contentious debate in its relation to the church, but it does mean that we should trust that he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. As you, you should be confident in the work of the Holy Spirit in your life, the enabling and empowering work of the Spirit that is sanctifying you and equipping you and providing you with the, the message that you can then proclaim to a hostile world knowing that some will receive judgment for their rejection, but some will enter in to the blessings of the Lord. So those who, who are called to proclaim the gospel should know that death is followed by the resurrection of the church. And that's, that's where this passage concludes. God breathed life into his two witnesses who stood on their feet, and only the breath of God can grant life to a dead corpse. And this, this brought a great sense of fear upon their mockers. But instead of consuming their persecutors with fire, the witnesses are taken up into heaven in a cloud, in verse 12. <clears throat> Again, there's nothing secret about this ascension. God calls them up, come up here, and just as... Um, you know, the, so the, the prom, it, it, it's both the promise of... of the believers 
presence with God. Again, never separated, neither death nor life will separate us from God. It, it, it conveys that promise um, that we will always be with him. And it also can convince or confirms the, the duty of the church to continue to proclaim uh, that message in the face of hostility. All right, so we see this anytime persecution ironically leads uh, to church growth. That happens the seed of the history. Um, as Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Uh, we see that in every generation. As we near the end of this age, that persecution will increase, and the cataclysmic earthquake that accompanies the end of the age will rock the city. And, and here it describes killing 7,000 people, another symbolic number of a large portion of people. That's not a devastating portion, right? It's not the, it's not the end yet, but it is accompanying events that portray the end. And we've already seen the, the partial description of this earthquake in the sixth seal in chapter 6. We'll see it again in chapter 16 with the seventh bowl. So it's the earthquake that Ezekiel prophesied would accompany the day of God's blazing wrath in Ezekiel 38, verses 19 through 20. The question, though, is whether, whether or not their final reaction is a sign of genuine repentance. And because you read here of the inhabitants, the, the, the same ones who were mocking the death of the church. Now in verse 15, and at that hour, there was a great earthquake and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. Question is, what's genuine there? Their fear is consistent with what we would expect, but what is the idea that they gave glory to the God of heaven? Right, the language of giving God glory is typically positive. But the context here, given that it's related to the end of the age, suggests that it's, the res it's reflecting upon the resurrection of the church that will be accompanied by the forced acknowledgement of God's power and glory by the church's opposition. And that's consistent with Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 and 11, where uh, we are told that every knee will bow before their Lord, whether or not they acknowledge him as their Savior. Every knee will bow before him as their Lord. So this devastating judgment on those who dwell upon the earth is a depiction of the second woe, and it concludes there in verse 14. Release of the first woe is associated with the, the blast of the fifth trumpet, which contained the release of these demonic spiritual forces who inflicted harm upon mankind. And here's the, uh, the second woe at this promise of judgment upon those who dwell on the earth and who mock the church and her, demi her dis uh, demise. So all of this ought to sound quite familiar, familiar to you by now. Right? The, these witnesses are essentially reenacting the gospel message. The church is made up of people who have died with Christ and who will therefore be raised with Christ in victory, even if they give their physical lives to the mission of the church. The French philosopher Voltaire disdained the Bible, and he sought state opposition to Christianity. And he praised the wisdom of the popes of the Roman Catholic Church who forbade the reading of the Bible because it just meant fewer people were influenced by Scripture. As he's mocking the church. And it's an, it is ironic that a century after Voltaire's death, his house in Geneva 
became a storage site for Bibles. When Madame Mao saw the communist revolution of the 1960s, she announced the death of Christianity. So ironically, within 50 years of the church in China is now larger and stronger than ever. Some hundred million Christians there. Right? The persecution doesn't kill the church, literally. Right? It might silence the church for a season, but it's a three-and-a-half-day season in comparison to the three-and-a-half years that we're given to proclaim. Again, we have this whole present age. So the church is called to testify God's grace and wrath in the face of hostility, and we are given the promise that our witness will endure, that it's an invincible and an enduring witness. So whenever the witness of the church gives us confidence by state opposition, her impact increases. And so it should give us confidence, right? Instead of shrinking back in fear, these examples remind us of the resurrection power of God. They fill us with hope that God can bring life out of death. And so we'll be reflecting upon that in our home fellowship groups. I encourage you to, to read those passages there and answer those questions. Take some time to reflect and meditate upon this truth and be filled with that hope that his spirit provides. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this promise that even in the midst of persecution, even in the face of open hostility, you, you are with us and that you are supplying us the energy, the need, the empowering to be a light, to be a witness in this dark world. Lord, help us to recognize that at the corporate level, as, uh, even as we consider the church universal, but help us also to recognize that at a personal level, that we would take ownership of the great commission that you've given to us. Even as John was given a commission and a duty, you see, we see here that commission being given to the church. That we are your witnesses, and we want to be faithful in the proclamation of that message, Lord, wherever we find ourselves whether people are hungry to hear it and respond in obedience or whether they are blaspheming your name and cursing the church. Lord, we know that you will be victorious in the end, that your church will continue to grow even in the face of that hostility and that you will receive the glory. It's in Christ's name we pray, amen. Well, I invite you to stand. Our hymn of response is, I will glory in my Redeemer. Priceless blood has ransomed me. Mine was the sin that drove the bitter nails and hung him on that judgment tree. I will glory in my Redeemer who crushed the power of sin and death. My only Savior before the I will glory in my Redeemer 
life he bought, my love he owns. I have no longings for another. I'm satisfied in him alone. I will glory in my Redeemer, his faithfulness, my standing place. Though foes are mighty and rush upon me, my feet are firm held by His grace. My feet are firm held by His grace. And I will glory in my Redeemer who carries me on eagle's wings. He crowns my life with loving kindness his triumph song i'll ever sing i will glory in my redeemer who waits for me at gates of gold and when he calls me it will be paradise his face forever to behold Face forever to behold. 